Our text this morning is Romans chapter 9 and verse 4. Let's read the first five verses for context and then let's be reminded that this is the word of the living God which is able to make us wise unto salvation and save our souls. Let all who have ears to hear, hear and rejoice in the truth. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, of whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we would ask that you uh, graciously open your word to our understanding, that you would, um, Father, teach us what is true of you and of us and of our great privilege in Christ. And Lord, bring us to be deeper worshipers of the true and living God. Humble us, Father, that you might be exalted more and more in our hearts and minds. We praise you. Thank you for your work, the church whom you are building upon the rock of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We are continuing to work our way through Romans 9, verse 4, a verse which is really packed with a lot of wonderful doctrine. And my aim over the last many weeks has been to try to begin to unpack some of that for us so that when we read these glorious terms, um, we uh, have some understanding in our minds. We we have places where we can go in the Scripture to... Uh, think on these things and have a fuller understanding of really what the Lord is saying through the Apostle Paul. Just by way of quick refresher for those of you who have not been with us in this series uh, in chapter 9, Paul is uh, expressing a great sorrow. He's expressing a lament over his brethren. Those are his Jewish countrymen, those who are uh, brothers and sisters according to the flesh. And he's lamenting their unbelief. Um, In fact, He is uh, saying in verse 3 that he would willingly take their place of condemnation if it would guarantee that they could all be saved. If he could save them by cursing himself, he would make that exchange. This is the heart of the apostle and uh, the heart of uh, the Christian for the lost we want the lost to be saved. We desire their salvation and we plead with them and urge them and and pray for them, knowing that God alone can open their hearts. When we come to verse 4, we have looked now at several of these privileges. These are privileges that God gave to Israel, uh, the adoption, the glory, the covenants. We've looked at those three so far. And we've seen that These are privileges indeed because of what God has given to his people. The emphasis is on what God has given to them. He's called Israel his son. He's he's called them into relationship with himself in an intimate relationship, expecting that they would 
act like sons in return. He has uh, given the glory. He's shown something of his own glory, which is to say his very nature, his character, who he is. He's disclosed himself to the nation of Israel. And he manifested that to them in visible light. That was the glory that they saw. And what was the purpose of God doing that? Well, it was a great privilege to entrust them with a vision of his glory and understanding of who he is so that they might know him and resultingly worship him. And he gave them the covenants. The covenants, we looked at that over several weeks, to really see that God has one eternal glorious covenant that he has revealed over time to different people in different places, but all of which unfolds his nature and elements of what it means to be in relationship to him. He has promised, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And his covenant, the glory of it, is that he ensures his own promise. He pledges himself to us and he ensures that we will stay loyal to him by his own doing. So you can see the the privileges one after the other. Today, we come to the next two in the sequence, the giving of the law and the service of God. And I'd like to spend our time today considering these two great privileges with you, the fourth and fifth privileges respectively. And we want to ask the questions, what are these privileges, first of all? What is meant by the giving of the law? And what is meant by the service of God? Um, How did Israel respond to these privileges? And what is the application for us today in the church? That's really what I'd like to explore together with you today. So let's begin by a consideration of the fourth privilege. Paul is expressing that he is, um, that God has given a great privilege to Israel in the giving of the law. That word is a, a word that just means the setting down of the law. It's a reference to the Mosaic law which was given through Moses. And this refers not just to the Ten Commandments, but it refers to the whole of the law of Moses. It refers to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. In Romans chapter 3, when we were back there, there was a question that Paul asked at the beginning of that chapter with regard to the advantages that the Jews have. His question was this in Romans 3 verse 1, What advantage then has the Jew... Or what is the profit of circumcision? And his answer is in verse 2, much every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God a reference, being a reference to the law of God, the word of God. And the focus, the emphasis is that they were advantaged, they were privileged, they were blessed because God committed the oracles, to them. That is, he entrusted the law to them. So the emphasis is not so much that Israel had the law, but that God gave it to them. That's really what Paul is after here in this emphasis of why this is a privilege. And this was indeed a tremendous privilege for Israel. Psalm 147, verse 19, says this, He declares his word to Jacob. 
his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. The psalmist is saying that God directed his word to just one nation on the planet of all the nations. This is not something he did ever with any other nation. So by that uh, virtue alone, this is a great privilege. He taught them what was acceptable to the Lord and what was not. He revealed himself to them. And Israel knew something of this privilege. They acknowledged it. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, when Moses was standing on the plains of Moab and he was recounting to them their, his time with the people on the mount at Sinai, he says that they, the people, said this in Deuteronomy 5.26, For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? They got it exactly right. Who has ever heard God speaking, manifesting his voice to a people and not been consumed? That was a very great privilege for the nation of Israel. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 8 says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Man is small in the grand scope of God's universe. Why should God, who is so grand, pay any attention to man who is like a, an ant in the grand scheme of things, in terms of scale. He's tiny. And further beyond that, why should God pay any attention to man who is likened to a worm? Man who is a sinner, who drinks iniquity like water. In Job chapter 15, how much of a privilege was the giving of the law of God? That God would not only be mindful of people who constantly offend him and who are enemies to him, but that he should visit them, condescend to them, and speak to them the good word, his good word. I want to give you an example to illustrate this great privilege from the book of Nehemiah. Would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9? Nehemiah, as you know or may know, was a cupbearer for a Persian king. And he was the one who led the third group of the exiles back to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon in order to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the governor. The book of Nehemiah is most likely written by the priest and scribe Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were most likely one book uh, in the original. We've got it broken out into two different books here. Um, but it was Ezra who led the religious reforms in Israel at the time of their rebuilding the wall after the captivity. And he did that by teaching them the word of God as they rebuilt, um, as they rebuilt uh, under Zerubbabel's leadership. This is what he says in verse 13. And, and in verse 13, and really in chapter 9, what you have is a group of the Levites um, who are standing up and they are proclaiming 
the goodness of the Lord. And they do that by way of remembrance. And so here, starting in verse 13 of Nehemiah 9, this group of Levites recalls uh, God's work with his people starting at Sinai. Listen to Nehemiah 9, verse 13. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven um, and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. This is a picture of the great privilege. God, the eternal God, the maker of heaven and earth, first came down upon Sinai. He condescended to them. He, he didn't send somebody else, but he himself came. He approached them and he spoke with them from heaven. And he gave them what's called just ordinances and true laws. That is, just judgments, righteous judgments and true laws. And, and the judgments of God, we can understand in terms of really two categories. Um, theologians refer to the ordinances or the judgments of God as either apodictic or casuistic. Those are kind of fancy words, but it just means this. Apodictic refers to universal truths. That is, you shall do this and you shall not do this. We see that in the Ten Commandments. Those are the universal transcendent truths that never change. And they apply across all circumstances. And then you have the casuistic judgments, which is to say case law. How do you apply those universal truths to particular cases in Israel's life and society? And so that's what we have in the law of Moses, is these righteous ordinances or judgments. God was showing them essentially how to live. He was first teaching them who he was so that they would know how to relate to him rightly. And in light of their relationship with him, they would know how to live with others rightly in society. And through it, he was revealing his glory. He was teaching Israel about the glory of God, which was really meant to permeate them so that every area of their lives was touched by the glory of God. It was um, motivated by the glory of God in their dealings with him and with each other. In giving them the law, God taught them what was just, true, and good. Those three things. It's a wonderful summary of the privilege of the giving of the law. Paul said in Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Very similar summary. And in Romans 7 again, he said, the law is spiritual. This is a, a spiritual law that comes from heaven, from above. It, this is not an earthly law. And what is it that made God's law so good? Well, his law was a direct reflection of himself. And he himself is good. He is the definition of good. He's what embodies all goodness. And so his law, as a direct reflection of himself, was good. And it, particularly for Israel in the giving of the law, why it was so good for them is it led them in the path of life. It showed them the path of life. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, You shall therefore, the Lord speaking, keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Very simple. If you obey me, then you will live. This is the path of life. Through obedience. 
So one of the purposes of God giving his law was that Israel would learn it, that they would live it and obey it. The psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 9 says this, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. That's a great summary. Keeping the law brings great reward. It's a warning to sinners to turn away from evil and from sin and to pursue only what is just and true and good. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. So uh, what I I want you to see and what I'm trying to emphasize is that the privilege of the law was in the giving of the law to the people. But in giving the law, God was also expecting that they would respond rightly. How? With learning the law and careful obedience to the law. He gave them the law in order that they would respond rightly to the law. Look at verse 14 in Nehemiah 9 here, just continuing. He says, You made known to them your holy Sabbath. A Sabbath that was part of the law. It was prescribed in the law. It was a a day of rest, one day in seven, and it was perpetual every single week. That was a kindness to Israel that God did not give to other nations. You had may, have made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. The telling them to go in and possess the land was part of the law as well. That's Deuteronomy chapter 1 and uh, verse 8, I believe. Deuteronomy 1 verse 8. So you have the giving of the law, the kindness of God that he was showing them. Look at the problem now that is outlined by these Levites, recognized by them, starting in verse 16. He says, they say, but they and our fathers acted proudly. Here's the response. They hardened their necks and they did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. There's the response. Hardness of heart, a pride, a failure to glorify God for all that he had shown them of his wonders. They rejected God personally as their leader. You remember, they rejected him as their king when they wanted a king just like the other nations of the world. And they provoked him greatly. Their heart was to return to bondage. That tells you something about what was going on in their hearts. Sin makes a person crazy, not able to think clearly. This is insanity. Where is the problem here? The problem is in the heart. It's in the heart. Look at verse 19. 
Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light, and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations, divided them into districts so that they took possession of the land of Sion, the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. Look at the faithfulness of God despite their wickedness. He continued to show them kindness upon kindness. He continued to instruct them by his good spirit. He continued to make good on his promise of bringing them into the land and also multiplying their seed so that they were as numerous as the stars of heaven. But despite all their goodness, they continued to rebel. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs. There's the response. He gave them his good law, but they cast it behind their backs. And killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. Why did God send the prophets? To turn the people back to the law that was already given that they would respond to it rightly. And their response was to kill the messengers. And that caused great provocation in the eyes of the Lord. And so God delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And they cried to the Lord. And you begin the cycle that we see in the book of the Judges of oppression, a cry for deliverance. God sends the deliverer. They experience deliverance and are thankful for a time. And then they fall into rebellion again and again and again. Verse 33, these leaders come to a conclusion because the question might be asked, well, where's the the fault here? Is the fault with God or is the fault with the people? Here's what they say in verse 33. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. That's the right conclusion. That's the right conclusion of every godly person. To know that God is justified in all that he does. He's always right. Everything that he did for his people was good. And if they didn't produce the desired result, the the fault was not with the Lord. Look at verse 35. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them. There's the problem. God gave them the privilege of his law. Gave them an understanding of his good nature, his character. And in response, they didn't serve the Lord in their kingdom. Who did they serve? Themselves. Themselves. Or in the rich, the large and rich land which you set before them, they didn't honor the Lord in the land that he gave them nor did they turn from their wicked works. That's in their hearts. They love their wickedness, and that's what they were pursuing. They took all the blessing from the Lord, but they didn't requite any love or obedience to him, only a turning of the back and a continual wickedness. 
And so they conclude in verse 36, Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, exclamation point. We have just been exiled for 70 years because of our sin, because of our rebellion and hard-heartedness. God has graciously broken us through the exile and the captivity, and now he's brought us back to rebuild in the land. And we find ourselves slaves still. We're not in Babylon any longer. We're back in the land, but really we are still enslaved to our own wickedness. And we know that because God has set foreign powers over us, namely Persia at this time, who ruled over them while they were in their own land. They weren't free in their land. They were slaves. And of the increase of their fruitfulness and all the things that they grew and produced, guess where that went? It went to the foreign nation and not to themselves. That was exactly one of the curses that God pronounced from Deuteronomy chapter 28. A curse for disobedience. You will be ruled by others and they will take of your increase. Ezra in chapter 9 of his book affirms really the same thing. Um, We are slaves in the land. Uh, Ezra, who was preaching while the people are rebuilding the temple of the Lord, in chapter 9 of Ezra, um, verse 7, listen to this. Since the days of our fathers to this day, We have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. In our bondage. My Bible, the New King James, in verse 9 says, for we were slaves, the were is inserted. It's actually for we slaves. We are slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, don't give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, what do they deserve? Death. And have given us such deliverance as this. Here's the question. Should we again break your commandments? And join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt. 
though no one can stand before you because of this. This is a powerful testimony of sin. The people had been exiled. They've come back to the land and they have intermarried with pagans while in exile and possibly in the land as well. And God had told them, do not intermarry with the pagans. That was one of the reasons they were exiled for their disobedience of God. And here they are back in the land and they're committing the same sin that exiled them. Is it any wonder that you're slaves? You need to wake up. They did not respond rightly to God's law because they despised it. How destructive is sin? Sin is a cancer that destroys. Sin is that which defies reasonableness. Sin is what leads people to fall into the same error again and again, even though they know it's wrong. Do we know something of that? Or have you seen that at work in other people's lives? Yeah, the sinful heart can look at the numerous examples that God has given in Scripture of what happens when he brings judgment on a people for their sinfulness. Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, complete annihilation. And the sinful heart will say, I don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. That's the attitude that we heard at the end of Romans 1 with regard to all the ungodly who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who say this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They know what's wrong, and yet they continue in it anyway, even though they know it results in death and judgment. Sin is very powerful. God had given great privileges by giving the law. Great privileges. He came down and he spoke to them. He revealed his holy character in the law that the people would know the Lord and live in a right relationship with him and with each other. He taught them only what was just, true, and good. He showed them the path of life as obedience to his law. And he showed them great favor in the law both by giving them a, a day of rest weekly and by encouraging them to take possession of that promised land. That's what we could call the glory or the graciousness of the law of God. There was a graciousness to it. And despite their hard-heartedness, he continued to show them kindness, right? He led them faithfully. He continued to teach them faithfully. He gave them victory over their enemies. He brought them into a rich land that was already built and fruitful. All they had to do was take possession of it and enjoy it. He multiplied their children, and then when they sinned, he sent his prophets early to speak to them and to correct them, to point them back to this law. And for all that, the people's response was simply to shrug their shoulders and to stiffen their necks against him, not to turn the face to him, in other words. They were set in their own way. And God had every right to blot them out, didn't he? But in his great mercy, he did not utterly consume them, nor did he forsake them, and the question is, what more could he have done for them? Is there something more he could have done for them? That's the question that Isaiah asked in Isaiah chapter 5. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5? This is a, a poem that is written that um, 
is a sad poem. It's a poem about God's disappointing vineyard. And the question is asked in this poem, what more could have been done for my vineyard than God had already done? This is, um, this is really an exposition of Deuteronomy chapter 32. We looked some weeks ago at Deuteronomy 31 when the people were warned, God speaking, that he knew the inclination of their evil hearts, that after Moses would die, that they would rebel against him and provoke him greatly with all kinds of evil. And he told Moses, write down a song to remember and to serve as an um, attestation against the people when they turn to their rebellion. Read the song and show them my judgment against them. And so this really, Isaiah 5, is an explanation or an expounding of Deuteronomy chapter 32. Look how it starts. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Who is the well-beloved of the Lord? It's the Son. This is a, a poem, a song from the Father to the Son regarding his disappointing vineyard. And the vineyard, you'll see in verse 7, represents the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. So this is a, a metaphor, a vineyard, and it belongs to the Lord. My well, my well beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and he also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? That's the question. God gave his law to his people, his good law, and he expected a right response from his people. He expected good grapes, good fruit. But instead, he got back wild grapes. Um, that might sound like an exotic variety of grape that might be good still or interesting. It's not. The interpretation of wild grapes there is poisonous, stinking berries. Not desirable at all. Um, Deuteronomy 32 in that song refers to the vine and to the fruit of that vine. In Deuteronomy 32, 32, listen to this. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. That's bitterness. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. <laughs> That's pretty clear. Not mincing any words. So what is going on here? The sun has a vineyard. It's been pos positioned, placed on a very fruitful hill. Well, Jerusalem is referred to as a hill in Scripture, right? That's where God um, established his people. That's where he planted them. And what made it fruitful? Well, it was fruitful because it was cultivated by divine revelation unlike any other nation on the earth. Theirs was the only ground where God had revealed himself to his people to position them on a fruitful hill. And in the midst of that hill, he dug it up and cleared out its stones. This is the owner of the vineyard, the beloved. He he prepared the soil. 
so that it would be good soil to take good seed. And then he planted it with the choicest vine. Uh, Jeremiah refers to this vine as a noble vine in Jeremiah chapter 2. That is, this was a, a people who were privileged. This is a people who had received divine revelation. They were a good vine because of God's planting of them, because of his privilege to them. And he built a tower in the midst of the hill and a wine press he made in it. What are these things? And this, by the way, might sound familiar. This might sound like the parable of the wicked vine dressers you read about in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 21. There's a reason for that. They're parallel accounts. There's a, a lot of similarity between them. A little different emphasis between the two, but um, the same elements are here. This tower is here. What's the tower? Well, the tower is a high structure. It's a high structure that was, uh, it served multiple functions. It, it housed the overseers of the vineyard. They lived there. And it was of a great height so that they could both look out on the horizon for enemy invasion as well as oversee the vineyard within the walls to make sure that it was growing and producing the fruit that God expected from it. Well, the temple in Israel was that tower. The temple was where the priests dwelt. And they were to, from that temple, preach the word of God to instruct the people in righteousness. And they were to, by doing that, oversee God's precious vineyard. They were to um, fertilize that soil by the word of God so that the people would be fruitful in response. And they were also to look out for enemy attacks, for well, for physical, literal enemy attacks, but also for false doctrines coming in from outside that did not square with the Word of God. That was their role as overseers of the vineyard. What's this wine press? Well, the wine press is where the grapes were brought, the fruit of the vineyard, to be crushed, to be turned into sweet juice and wine. And in Israel, that was the altar. That was the place where the first fruits of the vineyard, the people of God, were to bring their first fruits, the best of all of what they produced, and they were to offer it as a sacrifice, as an expression of thanksgiving to the Lord. That's this wine press. Now, notice the expectation of God's well-beloved regarding his vineyard. He says, and so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth Wild grapes. <laughs> and then in verse 3, he calls the people to a courtroom setting. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Where does the fault lie here? Did God lack something in his provision for this vineyard? Why then does it bring forth wild grapes? And the answer to that question you can see in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust. Here's the reason. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. 
So there's the clear reason. They rejected the law. And not only did they reject it, but they despised it in their hearts. They hated it. They didn't want to be governed by the law of God. Matthew Henry, concerning this account, said this, and I thought this was insightful. He said, They, Israel, had everything requisite for instruction and direction in their duty, for quickening them to it and putting them in mind of it. And they had all the opportunities they could desire for the performance of their duty, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the solemn feasts. They had the scriptures, the lively oracles, a standing ministry in the priests and Levites, Besides what was extraordinary in the prophets, no nation had statutes and judgments so righteous. Matthew Henry is saying the people of Israel were told exactly what to do with regard to God's law. He instructed them. And he gave them every opportunity through all that they were given. From the word to the structures, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, all the feast days. Everything was there to give them opportunity to perform their duty. And the question is, why didn't they do it? Well, their vine was corrupted by sin. That's the problem. God planted them in the land and he gave them all the external conditions necessary for fruitfulness. He did everything so that they would flourish. But they still corrupted themselves. That's the power of sin. Sin can be planted in a perfect environment and it can still corrupt itself. That's why, brothers and sisters, people are not able to reform themselves through external means. They can't just change their environment uh, or give themselves some power of self-helps and expect to change and to start bringing forth good fruit. Good fruit as defined by Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. God's very character produced in you. That's the fruit that he's after. I read an article um, in a, on a website called Positive Psychology. Um, I don't typically read psychology websites, but I was just thinking about this question of how does the world perceive human flourishing? What is it that they believe is required for people to flourish, to bear good fruit? And the answer of the world is this, and this is a quote from this website. Most psychologists agree that flourishing encompasses well-being, happiness, and life satisfaction. However, even these components of flourishing have their own subcomponents, including meaning, purpose, autonomy, that means operating on your own, self-acceptance, optimism, self-determination, personal growth, and self-esteem. So, in other words, a good dose of me, myself, and I is what's needed. Um, They add health, financial stability, and religious or spiritual health also come into play with regard to human flourishing. In other words, give a person the right environment and teach them the right things to think about themselves, to be positive and to build themselves up, and they will flourish And give them all the money they need and give them the health they need. That's what's required for human flourishing. Well, as we consider the beginning of the scriptures, Adam and Eve, in the garden, which was paradise, a perfect environment, did they fall? Yes, they did. Because they listened to the lie of the serpent. And sin came into humanity, to the stream of humanity, through Adam. So, um, if Adam and Eve could fall in... Paradise, and if 
the nation of Israel who were planted in the promised land of milk and honey could corrupt themselves and turn their back on the Lord, how much more we who don't live under the theocracy that Israel enjoyed? What more could have been done to his vineyard is the question. And the answer is nothing short of planting a whole new vine. They needed to be born again. That's the message. They needed a new nature. Their vine was corrupted. God needed to recreate them from within by giving them the new covenant promises that we've been learning about, right? He needed to sprinkle them with clean water. He needed to take out their old heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh. A dead heart needs to come out in a living heart that knows God and loves God needs to go in. God needed to give them one way. He needed to continually put his fear in their hearts so that they would never depart from him. He needed to put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts so that they would love it and never forget it. He needed to give his Holy Spirit to cause them to walk in his way. And he needed to forgive their sins once and for all so that there would not be a remembrance of sin anymore. Brothers and sisters, how important is the new birth? The new birth is not just a New Testament concept. This is what's been required all along. It's wonderfully summarized for us in the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John 3. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus said, don't marvel that I say to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The emphasis on must is mine, but that's an emphasis. How does it happen? Well, his answer, the Lord's answer is the wind blows where it wills, where it wants to. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. God, the Spirit, must come upon your heart. He must blow across your life in order for you to be born again. John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. But of God. God is the one who must rebirth a person from above. You had your first birth on this earth. That birth is a corruptible birth that results in death because of sin. You must be born again from above in an, by an incorruptible seed so that your new man, your inner man, is now patterned after God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians chapter 4. The new man cannot sin. It's the old man, the old flesh, that sins and continues to sin in you. In anything short of that total transformation, a starting over in life by this new birth, is just, pardon the expression, putting lipstick on the pig. It dresses up the pig a little bit, but the person still has that nature of a pig. Or, maybe another analogy, and it was on my mind because yesterday in the men's group we were talking about the Titanic. It's like rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. It's a total waste of time because of the inevitability of judgment. You're still under God's wrath 
if you haven't been born again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 um, refers to the Old Covenant as um, a ministry of death. A ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, his face, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. There's a comparison here between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is called the ministry of death. Why? Because it condemns sinners. It shows that they are not able to keep the law. And as long as the law is external and written on tablets of stone, you remain under a ministry of death. It only amplifies the sin of the sinner. But it becomes a ministry of righteousness when the law of God is written on your hearts by the Spirit of God. When He changes your nature. Mercy and truth must meet together if we are to respond rightly to the Word of God. And that mercy and grace is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. There's the giving of the law, the privilege. And there was a grace to that, a graciousness about that. That's the privileges that we were enumerating earlier. But truth and grace, grace and truth, came, in other words, were fulfilled through Jesus Christ for us. There's a whole lot that could be unpacked just from that one verse, but suffice it to say this. Jesus is the one who gives us the new heart. He is the one who gives us the desire to obey Him. He, by His Spirit, causes us to obey Him by His own power. It's not enough just to be given the truth We need the grace of God in order to respond rightly to the truth. And that grace is found in Christ alone. I want to look with you at this fifth privilege, which is called the service of God. The service of God. What was the service of God? Well, the word that Paul uses for service is the word latria in Greek. It's It's a divine service that was given to Israel specifically for the priests. It was the service uh, of priests to perform sacred functions according to the requirements of the law. And we see a really good example of this in Hebrews chapter 9. So I'd ask you to turn there with me. This was our corporate reading this morning. Hebrews 9 describes um, the difference between the first and the second covenant again, but it does it in in an interesting way with regard to the tabernacle and those who served in in it, the priests. Hebrews 9, verse 1, Then indeed even the first um, covenant is inserted in the New King James here, but in the Greek it's the word skini, which is tent. So it's referring to the tabernacle. Indeed, the first tabernacle had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Um, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. 
and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6, Now when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Well, what were the services? It's the same word, latria, that we're talking about. Well, the job of the priests were really threefold inside of the tabernacle. They were to replace the showbread every Sabbath. The bread would get stale, and so they would set out fresh bread every Sabbath. They would keep the lampstand always lit, which required trimming the wicks and keeping the oil reserve filled. The lampstand was never allowed to go out. And the third thing was burning incense. Morning and evening, they were to burn incense in the tabernacle. In the first part, you remember there were two parts to the tabernacle. There's the holy place, which is the main room. This is where the priests served daily. And then there's the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, which was reserved for the Day of Atonement once a year. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Um, the high priest alone was allowed to go in there. The priests, of course, had other responsibilities outside the tabernacle. They were to teach the people the Word of God. That was a principal job that they had. Um, but this that's being highlighted here is the work of the priests in the first part of the tabernacle. That's important to remember. Then we have the second part of the tabernacle. Who performed the work or the service in the second part? Look at verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins in ignorance or committed in ignorance. So here, the writer to Hebrews is contrasting the second part of the tent, the tabernacle, with the first part in verse 6. And the service that's being described here is called the Day of Atonement. Atone is just a word that means to cover, to cover. It was the word, by the way, that was used of um, Noah's Ark, when Noah was to cover the ark with pitch on the outside and on the inside to seal the wood so that it would float and the water would not enter. That covering was this word atone or atonement. Except here on the Day of Atonement, the covering that's in view is that of blood. It's the, the death of an innocent animal that was required to be spread or sprinkled, rather, on the uh, lid of the ark, the mercy seat, as it was called, in order to take away or cover the people's sins. Um, the priest, the high priest's responsibility was to come into that one room, that inner chamber, once a year, and he couldn't come without blood. He had to kill the blood, or kill the animal, kill two animals really, a bull, and take its blood to cover his own sin. And then he had to take the blood of a goat for the sins of all the people outside. <clears throat> and the message in all of this, because it was a detailed account that God gave the high priest on this Day of Atonement. He had to sprinkle blood many times for himself, for the others. He had to sprinkle the different furniture pieces within the tabernacle because all of it was polluted by the sin of the people from God's perspective. So this was, it's Leviticus 16 if you want to read the detailed account. 
But the overall message that was communicated by this ceremony of the Day of Atonement was this. You are all unclean. From the high priest all the way down to the common person, everyone is tainted by sin. And constantly, because this is a, an annual service that the high priest did. The rightful punishment for their sins was death. And the only way that God would remain in their presence is that they needed to be cleansed. Cleansed. And this was a ceremonial cleansing. So God gave the priests a service where the people could be ritually cleansed of sin. And the service taught the people that they needed to be cleansed. And this really important truth, that they couldn't cleanse themselves. They had to be cleansed through the work of another, through the high priest, and through the sacrificial animal and through its blood is how they were ceremonially cleansed. So was the service of God a privilege for Israel when we think about it in, this, in these terms? Absolutely it was, because God was illustrating in picture form through this ceremony their need of spiritual cleansing and atonement in order to remain in the presence of God. He gave them pictures, physical pictures, moving pictures, so that they would understand a spiritual reality. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 9. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is important. The Holy Spirit, through the Day of Atonement, was teaching something. He was testifying. He was speaking something. What was it? That the way into the presence of God was not yet made manifest. The way was largely blocked still. One man, once a year for a short time, and that was it, to be in the presence of God. Hebrews 9.9 says it was symbolic. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. At the time that the book of Hebrews was written, the sacrificial system was still in place. The temple had not fallen yet in 70 AD. This was written before then. So the writer is referring to a symbolic ceremony which was still being practiced at the present time when this was written, Concerned only with foods and drinks, verse 10, washing, uh, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. But notice the transition now in verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, or that have come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. This gets very interesting because Christ now, as high priest, has come. He's manifested himself as the true high priest. But he's not high priest of the first tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary. He's high priest of a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And if you read back to the beginning of Hebrews 8, he's the minister, in verse 2, of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. This is a tent that was not made by any human hands. That's the true tabernacle that Jesus Christ is high priest of. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What else was God teaching Israel through this service? Well, he was teaching that the ordinances, this day of atonement, was only provisional. It was 
a, a pointer to something greater, to teach them that they needed a greater atonement than the one that the earthly high priest could offer. His was just good as a ceremonial washing that stayed the wrath of God for a time, but then he had to repeat it year after year after year. Their sins were never actually dealt with under that old covenant and that first tent. God is using the pictures of a tent, a priesthood, the sacrifices, the ceremonies to teach the people spiritual realities here with regard to who our great high priest really is and what the great sacrifice really was. And there's a very clever argument that is given here in, Romans 9, in Hebrews 9. It's this. The first tabernacle, that is the one that was erected by man, had a, an earthly sanctuary and earthly priests who ministered in it daily. In the first part of that tabernacle. That was the work of men that was being performed there. And the work of men is being linked with the first covenant, the old covenant. Hebrews 9.9 9 says that first tabernacle was just symbolic of the true, the one that was erected by the Lord himself in the heavens. It was just a copy and a shadow of the reality. And the only person that was allowed into the second part of that earthly tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, was the high priest who himself was a type of the true high priest, Jesus Christ. So follow this. When Christ performed his work in the second part, heart, when he sacrificed himself on the cross, he was presenting his own blood both as the offerer, the high priest, and as the offeree, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, through the Spirit of God into the presence of God in the true tabernacle in order to take away the sins of the people once forever. Christ was in the second part. He was not in the first part performing the work of men. He was in the second part performing the work of God. And that links with the second covenant, the new covenant, which is based on the work of God. See the cleverness of this argument? There's a first part and a second part. There's the work of man and there's the work of God. There's a first tabernacle and there's a second true eternal tabernacle, really. Not second in sequence, but the true and how did Israel respond to all of this service? Well, Hebrews 10, 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They kept offering the same sacrifices. They were stuck in the same system because they didn't see the point. They missed it. And their tabernacle, the temple, was destroyed in 70 AD. And that was it. God dispensed with it. That's why at the end of chapter 8, he says, now what is becoming obsolete with regard to the old covenant, the first, also linked to the first tent, tabernacle, and growing old is ready to vanish away. God was about to demolish that whole system of the sacrificial ritual system when the temple was destroyed. <clears throat> Romans 10 verse 3 says, for they, referring to the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They're still waiting for their Messiah. They've not responded the right way to the services. They didn't respond the right way to the giving of the law. They didn't respond the right way to the services of God. That's why Paul is so grieved for his brethren. So much privilege, and, yes, and yet they missed the point. <clears throat> well, 
just to close, how does all of this apply to us today, brothers and sisters? How do we rightly respond to the law of God? Well, if you're a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, um, 1 Peter 1 captures this really well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Listen to this or, or turn there if you want. 1 Peter 1, 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, there's the right response. Truth has been given, and we have obeyed the truth. We've responded rightly to the truth. You have purified your souls in obeying the truth. How? Through the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is what is required for anyone to rightly respond to the law of God. In sincere love of the brethren, you know that you've obeyed the truth if you've loved the brethren, your fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And then here's the command. Love one another. This is love one another with God's love, the agape love. Fervently, that means stretch yourself out for that other person or people. Stretch yourself out with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. How is it that anyone is ever able to respond rightly to the truth? The Spirit of God must recreate that person and give them a pure heart, cleanse them, and he does so by his own word. It's described as a living word. The word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Hebrews chapter 4. It, it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of a person's heart. The word is alive. And it's alive because he, it's intimately joined with the spirit. The spirit is the one who breathes out the word. So the word is not living unless it's the spirit who's breathing out that word. The word of God to Israel was a dead word for many of them because they had not the spirit on their hearts causing them to hear the word and to respond rightly to it. But the word of God is living and active. It is alive and it rebirths us as a seed that goes into the ground, the heart, and bears fruit. The word of God takes root in our hearts and brings forth new life. Peter says it's you, a function of your being born again. You didn't birth yourself. You've been born again. That's passive. It's happened to you. God has birthed you again through his living and abiding word. So we are obedient to the truth through the work of God, through his living word and the spirit who breathes it out. Does that mean that we keep the law? Yes, it does. Yes, it does, but not for righteousness. That's the mistake of the Jews and of every false religion in the world. We don't keep it for righteousness, seeking to earn favor with God. We have that already through God's work in his son at the cross. We keep his law for love. It's the law of love that fulfills the spirit of the law. And yes, we sin, don't we, brothers and sisters? When we sin, the scripture says we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God accepts your sincerity of heart toward him, your love toward him, even when you sin or even though you sin. Because Christ has died for you, that means his perfect obedience has been placed on your account. So when God looks at you, he sees you as one who is completely obeyed. Therefore, when you sin, confess your sin, repent, turn from it, and know that you are forgiven. 
and continue to walk in newness of life, rejoicing in the Lord who has done it all for you. What about the service of God? How do we perform the service of God, or do we perform the service of God today? Well, the New Testament teaches that all believers are a royal priesthood, right? 1 Peter chapter 2. All believers attend on the service of the Lord day and night in the sanctuary of the heart, where God dwells by his Holy Spirit. And now that Christ has come and fulfilled all the law, we don't observe the provisional shadows and copies anymore. They've all been fulfilled in Christ. Let no one judge you in food or in drink, Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. All the external ordinances were meant to point to us the reality of our salvation in Christ. We don't observe them anymore because they've all been fulfilled by Christ. And the principle that really governs now is this, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That means from a heart of thanksgiving and love and faith toward the Lord. Do everything that way. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, right? Love the Lord with all your heart and love one another as I have loved you, Christ. Love the Lord and love each other. That fulfills the entirety of the law. The entirety of the law. And the real service now, brothers and sisters, we're going to get to in Romans chapter 12 when we get there. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Same word. Service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You need a a renewed mind, which means you need a new heart, which means you need a new birth. Otherwise, it's only going through the motions. The only way you can serve the Lord is by being born again. The only way you can respond rightly to the Lord is by being born again. Let me just quickly address some of you who may not be believers this morning or trusting in the Lord. Friends, Israel could not wash themselves by themselves. Neither can you wash yourselves today. Another must wash you. Sinful man is always looking to wash himself, so to speak, looking to improve himself, looking to climb the ladder, looking to earn favor with God or the deity, the divine. But let's learn a lesson from the service of God in Israel. You cannot cleanse yourself. The greater high priest, Jesus Christ, must cleanse you. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, today, the scripture says, is the day of salvation. Today, there is a fountain that still is open to sinners to wash themselves of those guilty stains that you can never wash yourself from. No soap on this earth can cleanse those stains. But the blood of Jesus Christ can. He can alone cleanse you and restore you to a right relationship with God. Plunge into his fountain today by trusting him. By believing that his death on the cross was substitutionary for you. You deserved the death that he died, but he did it in your place. That you might be forgiven, cleansed, and forever to live with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, for 
um, how clear, Lord, it is. Father, the fault in the equation is always with us. Lord, you are blameless. You are good. Everything you do is right. Uh, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Of course, Lord. We, we affirm that. We trust, Lord, that um, you are able to cause your word to accomplish your perfect pleasure, to do exactly as you please, Lord. You're able to use your word to um, confront the sinner and to show him his own sinfulness. You're able to do that to, to make him desperate so that he is driven to Christ and believes in Christ and is justified by faith. And you're also able to harden those who are stubborn and will not hear you and who turn the back to you. Father, you are to be praised in all circumstances. Your word is glorified. Your name is glorified at all times. Lord, we bow before you. We are um, just in awe, Lord, as we think about your sovereignty, your power over all people, over all things. You control and fashion the heart of every man. There is no one who is hidden from your sight, Lord. All of us have to do with you, have to deal with you, have to give an account to you at the end. Lord, we pray that if there's any here who don't know you, that you would open that heart, that they would trust in the Lord, see Christ as the great high priest who covers their sin once and for all. Father, past, present, and future, all of it covered under the blood of Christ. Help them to see that. Bring new life, Lord, where there is only death right now. And Father, for your saints here, would you strengthen them by your word? Would you cause them to walk in your way, loving you more, worshiping you in a deeper way because of our greater understanding of what you've done for us? Thank you, Father, that you have done everything required that we would be brought to you to live with you and to enjoy you now in this world and especially in the one to come. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.